Broadcasting 123, this is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the second anointing ritual, colon, the complete script. Now, as those of you who watch Mormonism Live, which I co-host every Wednesday evening with Bill Reel, may know, several weeks ago we had on an individual who went by the name Abby Taylor, who had been involved, at least peripherally, her husband was much more involved, believe me, with the practice of plural marriage. He became enamored with a fundamentalist group that practiced plural marriage, and as part of that, He not only entered into the practice of plural marriage, he also received the second anointing ritual. And not only did he receive himself the second anointing ritual, he received a copy of the ritual itself. He became promoted to the point where he could perform it on his own, and therefore he had to have a script for it so that he could perform it on other people. After this man died and Abby Taylor began going through his belongings, she found, printed out, a number of documents and a number of articles. He had done a lot of research and contained among these articles was not only a script for the endowment ceremony, but also for the second anointing ceremony. This script is obviously not directly from the LDS Church. However, we do know that the LDS Church does perform secretly second anointings even to this day. That ritual is extremely sacred and therefore extremely secret and the people who receive it are not supposed to tell anyone that they are going to receive it or that they have been chosen to receive it and they are certainly not to tell anybody after they have received it that they have received it or know anything about the ceremony that's how secret this ceremony is and why it is that so few members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints know of its existence however this script came from a fundamentalist group which at some point broke off of the original church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and so it is quite likely that this script that has come into my possession does quite accurately reflect the current second anointing ritual performed in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I will also note that there are a couple of individuals who have gone public about their recollections of having received this second anointing. Tom Phillips is one of those. Another is Hans Monson, both of them high-level leaders in the church who had received, or at least so they claim, their second anointing, and they gave some details about what that experience was like. In this script, which has come into my possession and which I will be performing for you presently, are contained those same details described by both Tom Phillips as well as Hans Monson. So I have every reason to conclude that this script for the second anointing ritual is in all material respects similar if not identical to the ritual that is performed in the LDS temples to this day. So this is titled not the second anointing ceremony or ritual, it's titled the second anointing meeting. Preliminary information about the participants. There are at least six participants, which include four workers, that would be four temple workers if it's done in the temple, which include four workers and at least two candidates. It has to be two because it has to be a husband and wife. If it's more than two candidates, it's a husband and his multiple wives. The workers should have each received this ordinance previously. Of course they should. This is a secret ceremony. Only those who have received it get to perform it. 
The workers are, number one, the administrator or president. And here it quotes from Wilfred Woodruff's journal, July 24, 1846, to the effect that no man has a right to attend to the ordinance of sealing except the president or those who are directed by him to do so. So the administrator or president means it's obviously not the president of the church who's going to be doing it, but the person who's performing it is purporting to be an administrator chosen by the president. Number two, the assistant or instructor. So the workers are one, two, three, four. There's the administrator, the assistant, two witnesses, and a recorder. So that sounds like five people to me, unless the recorder is also one of the witnesses, and that's probably fungible. So the administrator we've talked about, the assistant is also called the instructor. He's number two. He holds the horn of oil and later gives instructions to the candidates about the last part of the second anointing. Once again, there's a first part and a second part. The first part happens in the temple. The second part does not have to happen in the temple. It happens at a later time. Instructions are given as to how the second part is to be performed. Although my understanding is, is that of recent years, they have changed that and performed both parts in the temple instead of having the second part be done somewhere else at a later time. Number three, two witnesses, as I mentioned, who hold the Melchizedek priesthood, that's specified. And number four is a recorder who may be one of the witnesses. Ah, a recorder who may be one of the witnesses to keep a record. The candidates are one man and his wife or wives, see, that's why it has to be at least two, or wives who must receive this ordinance by invitation from the president. No others are necessary. This ordinance should be kept as private and sacred as possible. Now we get to clothing. We've gone over the participants. Let's see what it says about clothing. The candidates must be clothed in the robes of the holy priesthood. So those are the temple robes. The administrator and the other workers may or may not be clothed in them. So they don't have to be clothed in the temple robes. They could come in presumably wearing a white shirt and tie and suit if it's a man or a modest dress if it is a woman. But frankly, it's likely that the only women who are going to be involved in this are the candidates themselves, the wife or wives to be sealed to their husband as part of this second anointing. And when I say sealed to them, they've already been sealed to them in the temple, but this is going to be the second anointing. So clothing, the candidates must be clothed in the robes of the holy priesthood. The administrator and the other workers may or may not be clothed in them. Two items which must be included with the robes are one, the white apron. So there's a white apron that's involved here as opposed to the green apron that we know from our regular temple robes. There's a green apron that is used throughout the endowment. Here there is a white apron. So there's going to be a graduation from green to white. It's almost like Gandalf the Grey going to Gandalf the White, which was obviously a promotion and an indication of his greater spiritual learning and awareness. So there's the white apron is number one. Number two is a white handkerchief. The white aprons for the candidates must be presented to them by the administrator in the Holy of Holies. So very sacred, this white apron. Any others wearing their robes must also wear white aprons. So if you're an administrator or an assistant or one of the witnesses or the recorder and you're wearing your robes instead of your regular street clothes, then you must wear your white apron and not the green apron. The candidates will be instructed to dress in their robes after entering the Holy of Holies. 
Next we get to the place, the location where this is to be performed. The place designed and intended for this ordinance is the Holy of Holies. And naturally, if you remember the LDS church and you have access to the temples to perform this ordinance, that's where it's going to happen. However, it goes on, however, another place for the second anointing may be specified by the president of priesthood. And that's very helpful for the fundamentalist groups who are performing these ordinances in a makeshift kind of holy of holies and not one that's contained in the temple itself. Also, it says, the ordinance should be confined to Zion or her stakes, as recorded in Wilfred Woodruff's journal, July 24th, 1846, because it is intended for gatherers to Zion only. That sounds a bit archaic. I don't know if that would necessarily apply today. However, it's interesting to know that information. Number per day. So the number of people who can go through this ordinance of the second anointing per day, only one man and his wife or wives may be anointed per meeting. If more than one man is anointed in a day, this is from Wilfred Woodruff's journal again. They seem to have a penchant for quoting from Wilfred Woodruff's journal, maybe because he was such a great journal keeper and because he had a number of things to say on this very interesting subject of the second anointing. This is from his journal, December 26th, 1866. If more than one man is anointed in a day, they should come together and open by prayer as though there had not been any meeting before and thus continue to the end. So actually, according to Wilfred Woodruff, you could have more than one second anointing per day, but you have to have an open and closing prayer as though it is a completely separate ordinance and as if it is indeed the only one happening per meeting. The number of meetings that may be held per day must be specified by the president. Okay. Items to be prepared. It is the responsibility of the administrator to oversee the preparation of all necessary items, which include clothing items, white aprons for the candidates, one for each. These should be made by persons who have already received the second anointing. Washing items. Number one, a bowl or container of warm, clear water. And number two, two white towels, one for girding and one for placing on the floor beneath the feet of the husband during the washing ordinance because there's going to be washing of feet coming up. Anointing items. Number one, holy anointing oil. See oil next page. And number two, horn for the oil. Now, when they're talking about the horn for the oil, it is actually a horn. It is a ram's horn or some other horn that can be used, once it's removed from the animal, obviously, to hold oil. And it is from this horn that the oil is poured in the ceremony. Next, sacramental items. Number one, unbroken bread and platter. And number two, wine and one glass. So there's going to be a sacrament that's going to be performed with wine, apparently, which, as we know, was the original substance used even in the Latter-day Saint Church. Or, it says, or, instead of the sacramental items, you could have wedding feast items. So instead of just having the sacrament, you could have a wedding feast, which consists of, one, wine and enough glasses for each of the persons present. We wouldn't want to leave anybody out. Number two, cakes or bread. Plenty for all. Number three, napkins. Number four, table for feast. And that's optional. So this is very detailed, isn't it? Room preparation. The room should be cleaned before each meeting as necessary. Well, that makes sense, but we're going to find that that detail is also included, that it be cleaned before each meeting. Now we get to the section on oil. Olive oil is used for the second anointing. It must be dedicated and consecrated, especially for this purpose 
and may be perfumed. So this is not just the regular anointing oil that elders of Israel use to bless those who are sick and afflicted in the household of faith. This is dedicated and consecrated specifically for the purpose of performing the second anointing. The oil should be consecrated by the administrator with uplifted hands, holding the oil in his left hand, as described by the prophet Joseph Smith. So here we have a quote from the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 322 through 23. At early candlelight, I met with the presidency at the West School Room in the temple to attend to the ordinance of the anointing our heads with holy oil. I took the oil in my left hand, Father Smith, that would be Joseph's dad, Father Smith being seated before me, and the remainder of the presidency encircled him round about. We then stretched our right hands towards heaven and blessed the oil and consecrated it in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe that is from the history of the church where it's describing a meeting they had in January or February of 1836 prior to the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. The Kirtland Temple is what they're referring to when it says that they met at the West School Room in the temple. Going on, the oil may be consecrated beforehand or during the second anointing meeting. In 1886, Samuel Ross Kelly noted that in the Logan Temple, Joseph F. Smith and others dedicated 12 bottles of olive oil for anointings, and then the same men blessed six bottles of oil for second anointings. Very interesting. Notes on use and care of oil. Consecrated oil should never be used profusely so that it must be wiped off. President David H. Cannon gave these important instructions on the use of oil. Now, this is from the St. George Temple Minute Book in 1903, so it may have changed a bit by 1903 from the profuse use of oil. That was a hallmark in the 1830s and 40s. Here's the quote, when a person is anointed, the towel should not be taken to wipe off the oil from the face or the hands or any portion of the body. Oil should not be used too profusely by the workers and should not be wiped off. There are probably some who do not understand this correctly. If they did, they would not do it. It must not be done. Okay, so that's pretty clear on that issue, at least as far as 1903. And I think we see this reflected, perhaps, in the regular anointings that we do for blessings, priesthood blessings, where just a little dab, a little dab will do ya, just a little drop is placed upon the crown of the head, and it is not wiped off. It is allowed to remain. So using a little bit is consistent with not having to wipe anything off. If you use too much, then you are going to be put in the position of having to wipe some of the excess off, unless you want to walk around with oil all over your head and face for the rest of the day. The instructions go on. If too much oil is poured out of a bottle, the unused portion should not be poured back into the same bottle unless the entire bottle is re-consecrated. Extra oil can either be saved in a separate bottle until there is enough to re-consecrate or be burned. So once it's consecrated and out of the bottle, and it's interesting, it's talking about a bottle here where previously it talked about a horn. So there seems to be a little bit of perhaps commingling of instructions here. One talks about a horn, this one talks about a bottle, which suggests that they're getting their information from two different lines of instructions, perhaps. But once it's consecrated, once it's out of the bottle, you cannot put it back in the bottle. You cannot put a genie back in the bottle and you can't put consecrated oil back in the bottle. That's the lesson here. 
Going on, a bottle of consecrated oil for second anointings should be given to the husband for use in the last part of the second anointing. The administrator or assistant should give it to him along with instructions on its use and also be told that any oil remaining should be returned to the administrator or be burned. Again, it is not to be used for any other purpose. All right, so once again, giving that bottle of consecrated oil, second anointing consecrated oil to the husband when they leave is for use in the second part of the second anointing ritual where he does need to have this special oil with him, which apparently can be consecrated only by the administrator. Procedure for the meeting. Ah, here we get to it. The administrators and workers should enter the Holy of Holies before the candidates. The candidates must be invited into the Holy of Holies by the administrator. This ordinance should be attended to as in solemn prayer before God without any unnecessary talking or confusion. And there they're quoting from Joseph Smith, February 6, 1836. They don't give a reference beyond that. Holy greeting and kiss. The administrator greets the husband at the door with uplifted hands and says the following words. Art thou a brother? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother through the grace of God, in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless, in thanksgiving, forever and ever. Amen. And that greeting, I think, is in similitude of the greeting that was described in the Doctrine and Covenants to be given to those who were attending the School of the Prophets, that the leader of the school would greet each of those who came into the School of the Prophets with this greeting, and the greeting would be returned. To this greeting, the husband answers simply, Amen, or he may repeat the greeting. There it is right there. By the way, this is a bit of a cold reading on my part, because I like to do the cold reading where I have a general understanding of what's in it, but the cold reading allows me to give my takes on it in real time. The administrator then kisses the husband with a holy kiss. It doesn't say where he kisses him, but it does say the administrator then kisses the husband with a holy kiss. Yeah, keep it holy, administrator. The husband and his wives are then admitted into the Holy of Holies. Hmm, okay. So that's the whole ritual that takes place before they can come into the Holy of Holies. Dedication of room and altar. There is an altar. A prayer is offered to dedicate the room and altar by one of the workers, as was done in the Nauvoo Temple. Well, this is from Brigham Young Journal, January 7th, 1846, where he says, We put on our robes and proceeded to dedicate the altar and pronounced the dedication prayer. Not necessarily having to do with a second anointing, but they're going to quote it there as support for what it is they're doing and how it is they're doing it. It goes on, the room, even the Holy of Holies, must be dedicated each time it is used for this purpose. So even though the Holy of Holies is the holiest place in the temple, which means it's the holiest place in the world, and even has the name Holy of Holies, it has to be dedicated each time it is used for this purpose, regardless of how holy it already is. Robes and white apron. The husband and his wife or wives dress in their temple robes. Let me stop for a second and say that I would expect that the actual ritual written for the LDS Church today would not continue to say, or wives. That sounds like a fundamentalist add-on. It could be, but I doubt it. It probably just says the husband and his wife. 
dress in their temple robes. Here it says the husband and his wife or wives dress in their temple robes, being presented with the white aprons by the administrator. An explanation of and instructions about the white apron may be given by the administrator. Opening of meeting. An opening prayer is offered with the one praying, kneeling at the altar, while all others present form a circle but they kneel around the altar too. So they kneel around the altar. See, this is like the prayer circle in the temple today as part of the endowment where the administrator kneels at the altar and he prays to God and the other people form a prayer circle around him, but they are standing at that time. Here, the others present form a circle kneeling around the altar. An opening hymn or hymns may be sung if desired. Then we go to the true order of prayer. Yes, the prayer circle. Here it is. The administrator stands at the head of the altar with the husband and his wife or wives facing him. The husband on the right of the administrator and his wife or wives on the left. The administrator and the husband and his wife or wives then offer up the signs of the priesthood. Right, just like in the endowment during the prayer circle. The administrator then kneels at the altar using the second sign of the Aaronic priesthood while the husband and his wife stand opposite the administrator holding the patriarchal grip. If other wives are present, they form a circle placing their right hand upon the grip. This is just like when you're having a child sealed to you who's not born under the covenant and you go into the temple, you get sealed. And if there's a child there, such as a baby or older, that baby or other child places their hand upon the patriarchal grip and they are then sealed to the parents who are being sealed together at that time. The assistant and two witnesses also kneel. The administrator offers up the prayer with all others repeating his words. Now we get to the washing of the feet. And this is the first main part of the two-part ritual. The ordinance of the washing of the feet has three basic parts and is usually followed by the sacrament. The wedding feast may be partaken of instead of the sacrament if desired by the administrator. The three parts of the washing of the feet are one, the washing, two, the anointing, and three, the sealing or confirmation. This ordinance is to be administered by the administrator or president or by one appointed by him. See Doctrine and Covenants 88 verses 140 to 141, also St. John's Gospel 13, 4 through 10. The washing. The administrator removes his temple robes if he is wearing them and girds himself with a white towel and places another white towel beneath the feet of the husband who should be sitting. So there's the use of the two white towels. Before he begins to wash, he says the following basic words. Before I get to that, let's go to St. John 13, 4 through 10, where it's described when Jesus did this to the feet of his disciples. Okay, so that is the scriptural reference for that. Doctrine and Covenants section 88 is going to be talking about the similar ordinance being performed in the Kirtland Temple. So this, these are the basic words that the administrator says when he's washing the feet of the husband. Brother blank. We'll say Brother Brown. Brother Brown, in the name of Jesus Christ and by virtue or authority of the holy priesthood, I wash your feet in accordance with the pattern set by our Lord Jesus Christ when he washed his disciples' feet, and also according to the pattern given by the prophet Joseph Smith as an introductory ordinance to the school of the prophets. I pronounce you clean from the blood of this generation and say unto you, your sins are forgiven you. And I confer upon you all the rights, blessings, powers, 
and privileges associated with this holy ordinance, and I do it by virtue of the holy priesthood in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The administrator then proceeds to wash the right foot. So that's the first foot to be washed is the right foot, pronouncing these basic words. Brother Brown, I wash your right foot that it will lead out in righteousness, that you will be swift in defense of truth and virtue, and always be found in paths of righteousness. Other blessings may be added. The administrator then dries the right foot and then washes the left foot. Then he says these words, I wash your left foot that it will follow your right foot in defense of truth and righteousness. Other blessings as before stated in washing of right foot. The left foot is then dried. Now we get to the anointing. So we've had the washing of the feet, now the anointing of the feet. The administrator anoints the right foot first, beginning by pouring the oil, not excessively, on the crown of the foot, and then anointing the whole foot. He uses the same basic wording for the anointing, except replacing the word wash with the word anoint. The left foot is then anointed in the same manner, again using the same words used for the washing and replacing wash with anoint. Then we get to the third part of this ordinance, the sealing. The administrator and assistant, both apparently, lay their hands upon the head of the husband and seal or confirm the washing and anointing of the feet. So that's similar to the priesthood blessing, where after the anointing, two individuals have to seal the anointing, and one pronounces a blessing. Okay, sacrament. The sacrament is administered immediately following the washing of the feet, unless the wedding feast is planned for this meeting. The wedding feast, if held, should take place near the end of the meeting. So if it's a sacrament, you can have it now. If it's the wedding feast, the full meal deal, then you should wait until the end of the meeting. If more than one second anointing meeting is held in one day at the same place, the sacrament may be administered preceding all the meetings to all participating. Okay, so you can have one sacrament meeting for everybody who's going to be participating that day if there's more meetings than one on that given day. The second anointing of the husband. According to instructions given by Brigham Young, see the Wilford Woodruff Diary, December 6, 1866. It's quoted from that before. The husband should kneel at the altar at the right of the administrator while his wife or wives kneel across from him at the administrator's left. However, it says... Fanny Stenhouse Young recorded that she and her sister wife sat when they were anointed for this ordinance. So there is some variation there being acknowledged. The assistant holds the horn of oil. The administrator pours the oil upon the crown of the head of the husband and then lays his hands upon his head and blesses him. The second anointing blessing should be recorded word for word by the recorder. Here is the wording to the husband. It says, There is no exact wording that must be used for the second anointing. However, there are seven essentials that should be contained in this sealing. Other blessings, promises, and prophecies may be added. Many of these, however, are elaborations of the essentials. So here are the essentials. Number one, call brother, call the brother by his full name. Number two, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pour this holy anointing oil. Number three, ordain by anointing king and a priest for sealing power. Five, ordain by anointing to patriarchal power and priesthood. Six, seal unto eternal life. 
seven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's look at how this might be done. It has what I've just read you in the left column. On the right, there's another column which give examples of wording that could be used. So number one, Brother Brown. Two, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pour upon thy head this holy anointing oil. Three, and I ordain you by anointing you a king and a priest unto the most high God to rule and reign in the house of Israel forever. Now, this is significant because in the first washing and anointing that one receives before getting their temple endowment in the temple, you are advised, at least in the endowment, that you have been washed and anointed not to be a king and a priest, but only to become such through your faithfulness. And it also says that the time will come, if you are true and faithful, that you will be called up and you will actually receive the anointing to be a king and a priest. And this is the ritual in which that happens in the second anointing. So once again, number three, and I ordain you by anointing you a king and a priest unto the most high God to rule and reign in the house of Israel forever. Number four, and I seal upon you power to bind on earth and it shall be bound in heaven. And whomsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and whomsoever thou shalt bless shall be blessed. So when one receives the second anointing, one also receives the power to perform second anointings, at least if properly authorized. They now have the power to seal up things on earth and they will be sealed in heaven or vice versa to loose things on earth and it shall be loosed in heaven. Number five, I ordain you by anointing to the patriarchal power to receive the keys of knowledge and power by revelation to yourself and to your posterity. So here's where the patriarchal priesthood comes in. We hear that name thrown about here and there, but we have come to the point in Mormonism in the first part of the 21st century where we have only the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. Whatever happened to the patriarchal priesthood that Joseph Smith talked about as a third priesthood in one of his sermons? Well, this is where you find it. You find it in the second anointing. And in the second anointing, you receive this patriarchal priesthood, which once again allows you to perform the sealings yourself if you are appropriately and properly directed to do so and authorized to do so. I ordain you by anointing to the patriarchal priesthood to receive the keys of knowledge and power by revelation to yourself and to your posterity. Number six, I seal you unto eternal life and against all sin except sin against the Holy Ghost. So that is where a person receives the more sure word of prophecy. That is where the person is sealed up unto eternal life. That is the place where the person has his calling and election made sure. It has not been sure up to this point. Based upon his faithfulness, it is now made sure, and he is sealed up unto life eternal and against all sin except sin against the Holy Ghost. And seven is the closing, the doxology, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It now spends a good deal of time giving examples of other blessings that can be given in addition to these seven essentials to the ordinance. And here are the examples of wording that they give. One, I ordain you an equal in the order of the priesthood with the right to build up the kingdom in all the earth and power to fill any vacancy that might occur. Number two, I seal upon you all the blessings of thy progenitors, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even as far back as the priesthood. 
Number three, I seal you up unto the day of redemption, that ye may not fall, notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. Number four of these suggested additional blessings that may be given, but don't have to be given. Number four, I seal upon thee all the power and blessings of the holy resurrection to come forth in the morning of the first resurrection, clothed with glory, immortality, and eternal lives. Number five, even to the eternal Godhead. Godhead is implied in the power of the resurrection. Number six, God will send thee the second comforter to build thee up and strengthen thee in the hour of need. So here is the idea of the second comforter, which as Joseph Smith taught, is to have the Savior himself appear to you from time to time. And it is often thought that when one receives the second anointing, part of that ritual is to have Jesus appear to them. Now here in this number six of suggested blessings, it defers that appearance of the second comforter to some unspecified time in the future. It says, God will send thee the second comforter to build thee up and strengthen thee in the hour of need. So it doesn't say it's going to happen then, but it will happen at some point in the future. That much may be pronounced as a blessing. Number seven, thou shalt mingle with the church of the firstborn and behold angels at some unspecified time in the future. Eight, thou shalt be clothed in white raiment and be admitted to the marriage feast of our Lord and Savior. Number nine, I say that thou shalt live to a good old age, even to three score and ten and longer if thou desire it. So you can get a long life from this too. Ten, no blessing that thy heart can conceive will be withheld from thee. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Number eleven, I anoint thy head that it may be sound and brains to be guided to think, thy ears to hear the cries of the poor and needy of thy brethren, who shall come to thy counsel, and eyes that thou mayest see and understand the things of God, and that thou mayest behold angels, and thy mouth that thou mayest speak forth the great things of God. And that's sounding like sort of a take, a different take on the blessings that one receives in the first washing and anointing. Second anointing of wife. Okay, so here's the second anointing for the wife. It's not going to be quite as long as for the husband. It's basically just going to talk about those seven main things that have to be included as essentials in the second anointing. So here it is for the wife. The president anoints each wife separately, either in the order of her marriage or according to the desires of the husband. So it's either going to be chronologically or any way the husband wants if he wants a different order. Each wife must be anointed a queen and a priestess to her husband, naming his full name. So the husband gets anointed as a king and a priest to God. Sorry, women, the good news is you get to become a queen and a priestess. But the bad news is it's not to God, it's just to your husband. But hey, he's going to become a God. So really, what are you complaining about? Again, no exact wording is set, but certain essentials are necessary. The wife is given a blessing or sealing in which she becomes a full partaker of all the rights, powers, and blessings of her husband. So here are the examples of wording for these seven essentials for the sister, for the wife. The first step is that she should be called by her full name, Sister Brown. Two, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pour upon thy head this holy anointing oil. Three, and I ordain you by anointing you a queen and a priestess for to your husband, full name, to rule and reign in the house of Israel forever. 
Five, to receive all the blessings upon thy head in common with thy husband. Six, and I seal you unto eternal life and against all sin, except the sin against the Holy Ghost. So there's that sealing up unto eternal life, which happens for the wife as well. And finally, number seven, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so now here's the instruction part. Instructions are given by the assistant to the husband and his wife or wives on how to complete the last part of the second anointing. So we've had the first part of the second anointing. Now we're going to have a second part of the second anointing. It's like the last Harry Potter movie where finally you've been through movie one, two, three, four, five, six. You get to movie seven and you find out, hey, wait a second. This is a two-parter. You're going to make two parts out of the seventh book. Well, they're going to make two parts out of the highest and holiest ordinance that is known to the Latter-day Saints. At least to my knowledge, maybe there's a third anointing out there, but this is, to my knowledge, the highest ordinance, and there's two parts to it. So instructions are given by the assistant to the husband and his wife or wives on how to complete the last part of the second anointing because they're going to be doing this somewhere separate and apart from the assistant, and they have to know how to do it correctly. The wives should have explained to them the significance of this last part as it relates to the resurrection of the dead. In this ordinance, a wife symbolically prepares her husband for his burial and resurrection, a ceremony that gives her a claim on her husband for herself in the resurrection. Now, this is one of the details that matches up with what both Tom Phillips and I believe Hans Monson mentioned it as well. I knew Tom Phillips did about the second part of the anointing. And they described pretty much exactly what these instructions are going to describe as being that second part. It goes on here. Although there is a literal meaning in preparing her husband for his burial, it is also symbolic. It symbolizes the death of the old man and the birth of a king and a priest, both capitalized, by the way, in a new birth or the resurrection. A king cannot be a king without a queen. What? Well, of course he can. But anyway, uh, sorry, regardless, once again, I'm reading this cold. A king cannot be a king without a queen. As each, and by the way, a queen can be a queen without a king. I mean, didn't we just have the longest reigning monarch in British history, Elizabeth II, pass away? She was a queen without a king. A king cannot be a king without a queen. That's what this says. As each wife is anointed and becomes a queen to her husband, she has claim upon this last ordinance. The assistant should also include in his explanation some instructions about the following. The place, when the ordinance may be performed, who should be present, by the way, that's husband and wife only is who should be present, the clothing to be worn, the basic procedure for the meeting, the procedure for the husband in calling other wives to receive the second anointing, information about the right breast mark on the garment. Hey, wait a second. That's interesting. There's some explanation the assistant is to give about specifically the right breast mark on the garment. It doesn't say what that explanation is to be. That's interesting. Okay, going on. Information about the white apron, when it is to be worn, etc. If it has not already been given. Warnings of the seriousness of this ordinance, such as, here's an example, it would be very unfortunate to apostatize afterwards, okay? 
That's the example of the warning of the seriousness of this ordinance. It would be very unfortunate to apostatize afterwards. And finally, the promises of the second comforter. So once again, here we have this appearance of Jesus being promised a second comforter. In addition, the assistant or the administrator should give a bottle of consecrated oil for second anointings to the husband along with instructions on its care and use. The husband should be told to either return extra oil to the administrator or to burn it, but it should not be used for any other purpose. So now we get to the wedding feast. If you're wondering if you chose wedding feast instead of the sacrament, here's what we do. The wedding feast may be partaken of at this point of the meeting instead of having the sacrament earlier. The wine is blessed and then the bread or cakes using the same prayers used for the sacrament. Then about one-third glass of wine is poured for each individual and all partake of the wine and cakes until they are filled. Okay, well that sounds like a great time, but only one-third of the cup of wine, mind you. That is specified, I'm sure, for good reason. Oh, then we get to the Hosanna shout. Remember that you have to bring not only a white apron, but a white handkerchief? Apparently, the Hosanna shout is considered so sacred, not only because it's used in temple dedications, but also because it's used in the second anointing. So it goes on, instructions on using the white handkerchief in the Hosanna shout and its meaning should be explained by the administrator. The signs of the priesthood are then offered by all present, after which the Hosanna shout is given, each waving his or her own white handkerchief in the right hand held high, shouting, Hosanna, 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 to God and the Lamb. Amen, amen, and amen. This is repeated three times. We do this at temple dedications. We did it once, I think it was a couple of years ago in general conference when all members of the first presidency did the Hosanna shout. And two of them were in time and one of them was not. And I'm not going to embarrass Elder Oaks by saying who it was who was out of sync. This is repeated three times. The administrator may also explain that the Hosanna shout may be done without the handkerchief, using both hands, raising them high above the head. So if you don't have a handkerchief with you, you can just use your hands. A closing prayer is then offered in the true order of prayer as described on page seven. There is a recapitulation of some of the information that we've already received, but then it goes on finally to talk about the ordinance of the second anointing, specifically part two, the washing of the feet, wife to husband. So here's the description of that. Number one, this ordinance is performed in the couple's home. Two, the husband dedicates the home and a room in which they will perform the ordinance. Number three, the ordinance follows the pattern of when Mary anointed Jesus in Matthew 12. What the wife does here is in memorial of what Mary did. So let's just go to Matthew 12 for a second so we can look this up and refresh our memories as to what it is that is to serve for the model for this second part of the second anointing that is performed by the wife upon her husband after they get home. Hmm? It says Matthew 12. Where the hell is it? Huh. Okay, well, that's a mistake because it's not Matthew 12. It's John 12, which is why I was having trouble finding it when I was looking at Matthew 12. Maybe this is the reason they decided not to have it performed at home because they accidentally gave the wrong reference. I can only imagine the couple getting home and scouring Matthew 12 and trying to find any reference to Mary anointing Jesus there. No, it's in John chapter 12. So let's look here and see what we can find. 
Starting with verse 1 in John chapter 12, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Here we go. Verse 3, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So apparently the wife is supposed to anoint the feet of her husband with this special consecrated oil and then wipe her husband's feet with her hair. That's when Judas takes issue with this whole thing and says, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And Jesus said, Let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. So in other words, she's anointing me in order to prepare me for my burial. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. So that is the story in the pattern that is supposed to be set forth and followed in the second part of the second anointing ceremony at the house of the husband and wife and performed with special oil given to them for that purpose. Going back to the instructions, what the wife does here is in memorial of what Mary did. For the wife washes the body of her husband, which is similar to the initiatory, which would be the original, the first washing and anointing one receives in the temple. Five, the wife anoints the body of her husband, which also says it's similar to initiatory. Three, the ordinance prepares the husband for burial, just like it did for Jesus. And in this way, she lays claim upon him in the resurrection. Number seven, having authority, she can pronounce whatever blessings she feels appropriate upon her husband in this ordinance as guided by the spirit. Now, this is interesting that the wife here, this is unusual in Mormonism for a woman to be performing an ordinance that requires the power of the priesthood, one would presume, but she is able to pronounce whatever blessings. First off, she's able to perform this highly sacred ordinance upon her her husband, the second part of the second anointing is in the hands of a woman to perform. And she does so. And then having authority, it says she can pronounce whatever blessing she feels appropriate upon her husband in this ordinance as guided by the spirit. Eight, this ordinance is not performed in behalf of the dead. It goes on to describe some preliminary information about the last part of the second anointing. The last part of the second anointing is private without witnesses involving only the husband and wife. According to records, this ordinance usually takes place within a few days or weeks after the first part of the second anointing. However, one record indicates that it took place several years afterward. There is no time limit as to when it may be performed. Place. The most appropriate place for this ordinance is in the Holy of Holies, where a couple may stay as long as desired undisturbed. So you can wait there and do it after everyone else has left. However, another place may be chosen if approved by the administrator. A room in the office building may be used by permission when no one else will be present. It must be dedicated for this purpose. Also, the couple's bedroom, which is in effect a Holy of Holies may be chosen or another appropriate room in the couple's dedicated home. Again, the room chosen must be dedicated for this ordinance. Clothing. The couple should wear their temple clothing, including the robes and the white apron. So that helps gives us more information and a better visual on this part of the second anointing. Items to be prepared. This will probably be somewhat redundant. The couple should make sure that the room has been properly cleaned. In addition, they should prepare washing items, a basin or bowl containing clean warm water. Two, 
two white towels, one for girding and one to be placed on the floor under the husband's feet. Anointing items, holy anointing oil, which should have been given to the husband by the administrator or assistant to a small dish and spoon if desired. What is that about? I guess we'll find out. Sacramental or wedding feast items, which are optional now, bread and plates, wine and glasses, napkins, if desired for the wedding feast. Procedures for the meeting. This meeting may be held as long as desired by the couple. They may choose to add hymns, songs, or any other appropriate activities as they desire, in addition to the ordinances performed. Opening of meeting. Either the husband or wife may open the meeting with prayer. Either the husband or wife may open the meeting with prayer. An opening hymn or hymns may be sung if desired. Dedication of room. The husband should dedicate the room for this ordinance. True order of prayer. The couple then offer up the signs of the priesthood in the true order of prayer, the wife repeating the words of the prayer. The washing of the feet. The wife removes her robes and girds herself in a white towel, placing the other white towel beneath her husband's feet. He should be seated. She then washes her husband's feet, beginning with the right foot. So she is going to replicate the washing of the husband's feet. He first received it in the first part of the ordinance in the Holy of Holies in the temple at the hands of the administrator. Now he's going to receive it from his wife in the second part of this ordinance. She then washes her husband's feet, beginning with the right foot. Going on, in the Bible, it is recorded that one of Jesus' wives washed his feet with her tears. No, it doesn't say that. It says a woman did. It doesn't say it's one of his wives. Obviously, they're interpreting this to be one of his wives. But regardless, this is what it says. In the Bible, it is recorded that one of Jesus' wives washed his feet with her tears. Tears are appropriate, but are not required. Well, that's good in case you're not a method actor. The water is symbolic of tears. All right, so if you can't get a few tears to go down your cheeks, it's okay because the water that you're washing his feet with are symbolic of the tears. Anyway, while the wife washes the feet, she pronounces blessings upon the husband. There is no set wording and much of it should be done by inspiration. The essential parts are given below. Here's the examples. My dear husband, full name, I wash your right foot in expression of my love and unity with thee and in preparation for your burial and resurrection. So different language that's going on when the wife washes the husband's feet from when the administrator does it in the Holy of Holies. It goes on, that I, the wife, that I may have claim upon thee in the holy resurrection. You can add other blessings and prophecies and close in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. After the right foot is washed, the wife then dries it with the towel or with her hair. See, her hair can come into play. And the more she wants to emulate Mary and the gospel of John chapter 12, the more she's going to be inclined to use her hair instead of a towel. The left foot is washed in the same manner using the same basic wording she used for the right foot, then drying it with a towel or with her hair. Anointing of the feet. The wife then anoints her husband's right foot, beginning by pouring the oil on the crown of the foot and then anointing the whole foot. While the wife anoints the foot, she again pronounces blessings upon her husband using a similar pattern as for the washing. And there it goes over the same wording. I don't think I'm going to bother repeating that since it's the same, except for the left foot. After the right foot is anointed, the left is anointed in the same manner using similar wording. Oil should not be wiped off with a towel. It does not say whether it should be wiped off with hair, but it does say it should not be wiped off with towel. Because remember, John 12 has Mary wiping the oil off with her hair. The head and stomach, this is an optional anointing. An optional anointing 
The head and stomach of the husband may also be anointed if desired. This was done by Violet Kimball, as recorded by her husband, Heber C. Here's what he says without any citation. I, Heber C. Kimball, received the washing of my feet and was anointed by my wife, Violet, for my burial. That is, my feet, head, and stomach, even as Mary did Jesus, that she might have claim on him in the resurrection. Well, obviously, the head and the stomach part is in addition to the passage that we read from John, at least from what I saw in the passage. So, sealing. The wife redresses in her robes. Remember, she had to undress in order to gird herself with a towel to do the washing and the anointing of her husband's feet. Now, the sealing part. The wife redresses in her robes and the husband removes his cap, his temple cap. The wife then lays her hands upon her husband's head and seals the washing and anointing and gives him a blessing, which should be prophetic in nature. And here are some examples. My dear husband, full name, I lay my hands upon thee and seal the washing and anointing of the feet thou hast received and anoint thee in preparation for thy burial and resurrection. And I declare my love and unity with thee that I may have claim upon thee in the holy resurrection you can give any prophetic blessings you wish but always close in the name of jesus christ amen other options of meeting the couple may then partake of the sacrament or the wedding feast if chosen they may conduct the meeting as they desire some examples of what has been done in other meetings for this ordinance include conversing about their duties to one another and their children reading the revelation of the eternity of the marriage covenant section 132 and speaking their love anew Yes, it sounds like a very exciting and romantic date night activity. Closing of the meeting. The meeting should be closed with prayer offered by the husband. So the husband must close the prayer, but the wife can open the meeting with the opening prayer. The meeting should be closed with prayer offered by the husband, either kneeling or in the true order of prayer. And that's it. And once you go through all of that, you have now completed the second anointing ceremony both parts of it. It is interesting to me that there's this idea that Jesus is going to show up in the second anointing, but in this language, it promises that now that you received it, Jesus will appear to you from time to time as you need him. The second comforter will appear to you. And yet here we have the administrator who would be an apostle at this point. And it seems that Elder Ballard shows up at least when Tom Phillips is talking about it. I believe it was Elder Ballard who showed up to perform the first part of his second anointing. When others have talked about it, I think the name Elder Ballard crops up again and again. So it appears that he really likes to do this or either that or he gets the short straw every time. So he shows up to do this ordinance. That's an apostle. So what we have here is in the first part of the ordinance, we have an apostle washing the foot of the husband who's receiving this second anointing. And the apostle is taking the role of Jesus. And the person who's receiving the washing of feet, the husband, is assuming the role of one of Jesus' apostles. That makes it a little bit confusing. The apostle is playing the role of Jesus, and the husband is playing the role of an apostle. But what is happening in that part of the ordinance is that symbolically, at least, because the apostle is playing the part of Jesus, the husband is seeing Jesus as portrayed by the apostle. This is a ritualization of the appearance of Jesus to the person who's receiving the second anointing. At least that's the way I, I can interpret it or I could see it being interpreted. But then when you get to the second part, now the husband 
assumes the role of Jesus. Remember in the first part where he's having his feet washed by the apostle, he is not Jesus. The apostle is playing Jesus washing the husband's feet. But when it gets to the second part of the second anointing, now the husband is being anointed by his wife who's playing the part of Mary. So now the husband gets to play the part of Jesus who in John chapter 12 is having his feet anointed by Mary. So once again, it is only the feet in John chapter 12. I'm not exactly sure where Heber C. Kimball added the anointing of the head and the stomach to this story, but in John chapter 12, it appears to be only the feet. The significant part to me being that the husband goes from playing the part of an apostle in the first part of the anointing to playing the part of Jesus in the second part of the anointing. There's definitely a sense of progression of advancement when you lay the two parts of the second anointing side by side. And then again, there's also this remarkable idea that the wife has the ability and the power, first off, to wash and anoint her husband's feet, which is something that only an administrator was able to do in the first part of the ordinance, which is now today probably only an apostle can do. But now the wife can do separately the ordinance that only the apostle could do in the first part. I think that's pretty remarkable. And then she has the ability to lay her hands on the head of her husband and seal the whole deal upon his head. So even though what she's doing is duplicative of what the apostle does, and in that sense is not as remarkable as doing it only by herself, the very fact that she's doing what only an apostle can do is a huge departure from the normal ability of women in the church to perform ordinances of the holy priesthood, which is basically zero zip nada, with the one carved out exception of those ordinances that are generally known, at least the temple-worthy members of the church, that women perform the initiatory washings and anointings on women in the temple. So there, there's a special place carved out for them where they can perform priesthood ordinances. It's only when the women are performing the initiatory ordinances on the women in the temple prior to the endowment. But here we get the additional insight that that's not where it stops. It goes on in the second anointing, and it goes on in a way that appears to put women on a par with apostles. And it certainly reminds me of the fact that in the Gospel of John, it is Mary who is by herself at the garden tomb, who sees the resurrected Jesus and then goes to tell the apostles. The apostles are called apostles because they are witnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And some people have noted that Mary was the first person to see Jesus, at least in the Gospel of John, on the morning of the resurrection. And she went and told the apostles about it. So she became, in effect, the apostle to the apostles. Well, here in the second anointing, we have a woman being able to do those ordinances in the second part of the ordinance, which on the other hand, we are told in the first part of the ordinance can only be done by either the president of the church or someone whom he has appointed to do that. And today that's generally an apostle. So that is the script and the instructions for the second anointing meeting in this document that came into my possession from a fundamentalist Mormon sect. It is my expectation that this is largely identical to the second anointing that is performed even today in the temple to those members of the church who have through a lifetime of faithfulness and sacrifice proven themselves worthy of being called up and having this anointing performed on them in this life.
If you like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time today to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website, click the donate button, and make a donation. If you could make a monthly donation, just $5 a month would be great. That's all I ask. $5 a month will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. If you choose to make $10 or $20 a month, believe me, that's fine too. I will not object. I want to thank all those who have already made donations and encourage all those who have not to make donations today. Your donations are what keeps Radio Free Mormon here with the lights on, with the recording equipment working, and with me being able to pay the rent for the studio. Thank you so much, everybody. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.